weren't they? What a great time of worship. Isn't it great that we can use our gifts to, to glorify the Lord? Um, a couple of announcements before we get into the Word this morning. Um, first, um, today after church, um, junior high kids are staying for, um, for their party. So um, I think probably all you parents are already aware of that. But if not, you're free. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, second, uh, second um, remember uh, Wednesday nights we're doing the Tooth Project. It's a great time. I encourage you guys to try to make it out to that. Um, this is the fourth session. It's not too late to join if you guys want to come. Third, um, so we've been talking a little bit about uh, mission trips. And we're kind of looking at two for this year if, if we're allowed to. right? If, um, so we'll see what happens. But we're looking at possibly going to um, Haiti in the spring with Leo. And, um, and that will be a smaller group of maybe just six or eight guys. It's going to be a, um, a work project. Um, I know a few people have already expressed interest in joining with Haiti, with uh, Leo there in Haiti and um, kind of helping finish his school. And then we're looking at probably the beginning of August, um, possibly a team to Belize to do, uh, to like a VBS and some, some ministry in the parks and stuff. And so neither of those are definite. We're just kind of considering them, kind of seeing who feels comfortable to go, etc. So next Sunday... After church, after second service, we're going to meet and discuss just kind of what that might look like and who's interested in going. So um, if you think you might be interested, you know, ask the Lord for some insight and direction and then um, come see what's what. Lastly, the, uh, the house that we used to live in right on the other side of the parking lot, Tuesday is the, uh, the knockdown day on that. And we have these two big steel planters in the backyard with raspberries in them. And um, I need some help moving them after service. So I could get, uh, I was going to ask for like eight or ten young guys, but I don't see eight or ten young guys. So it's the rest you will have to do. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we just need some help. Just, they're kind of heavy, but just kind of pick them up. And depending how heavy they are, either into my truck or... Um, just over into the parking corral over there. So if you could give me a hand after church, that would be awesome. And I think that's it as far as announcements. What are you laughing at? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, um, Lord, we just thank you that we can, that we can come together, Lord. We thank you for the family that you, that you've given us here. Lord, we're so grateful for the, for the fellowship and the friendship and the, and the brothers and sisters we have in Christ. Lord. And Father, it's been such a, such a weird time, such a weird year. Lord, and we're grateful that, that we have you and you and our church just to, to fall back on, Lord. Lord, we pray that as, as we move forward, that you would guide us, that you would give us wisdom, strength, Lord, and that your hand would be on us. And we pray that as we continue to open your word, that you would, that you would speak to your people. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, last week we were in Acts chapter 17. And you may remember Paul was there in Athens. And remember Athens was 
it was sort of that center of, uh, of philosophy and, and education and, and culture. A lot of the great Greek thinkers came from Athens. And remember, Paul went to Athens and, and he's walking around. He, he notices this, this shrine dedicated to the unknown God. Right, just in case they were missing out on any of the gods that they worship, they wanted to have all their bases covered. And remember, he got carried to Mars Hill, and he's talking to people there. And he says, "Hey, I see you guys are are all very religious people. I see you. You have all these shrines, and you even have a shrine to the unknown god." And Paul says, "You're in luck, because I'm here to tell you about him." I'm here to tell you who that unknown God is. I'm here to make that unknown God known. And remember, as he shared there, there were, there were a few converts, but, but there wasn't a, it wasn't Paul's most successful ministry there in Athens. And after a period of time, the Lord directs Paul out of Athens, and, and he directs him towards Corinth. And that's where we pick up the text this morning in verse 18. We find Paul... Moving on to Corinth. Now, Corinth was about 45 miles from Athens. If you were on a donkey or on a horse, you could probably make the journey in a day. If not, it was probably a couple-day journey. So if you want to kind of put it in, in terms of the Puget Sound, right? Athens would be like the, the Bellevue, probably. Right? There was culture. There's money. There's affluence. There's influence, there's a lot of innovation, right? The Microsoft of the world, all that kind of stuff. And Seattle would have been more like Corinth. Corinth was a, was a port city. A lot of traffic came and went through Corinth. In Paul's time, Greece had already been conquered by the Romans. And it was basically divided into two regions. To the north, there was Macedonia. And to the south was Ahia. And the majority of Ahia was, was a peninsula. And if you are to look at, at, at Greece on a map, down south there's what almost looks to be a, a large island. And it's connected to the mainland just by this little, this little isthmus. It's a few miles long and about four miles wide. And then... Once you cross over that, it expands, and, and you've got this, this big landmass. And on one side, you have the Ionian Sea, and on the other side, you have the Aegean Sea. Now, in that region, most of the year, there were very rough waters, and it was difficult in their little boats to sail all the way around the island there. And so what they would do is they would, they would make port in Corinth, and remember, it's just a little four-mile-wide strip of land. And they would often offload the ships, and slaves would carry all the goods across that four miles. And sometimes there would be another ship waiting, and they would put the goods on the other ship. And sometimes they would actually take the whole ship out of the water and transport it over those four miles. Now, they didn't have tractors and trailers, you know. How did they do that? It's kind of interesting. They had big logs, and they take. And keep in mind, right? This isn't the um, this isn't the Kitty Hawk, right? This isn't. These aren't huge ships. These are these are cabin cruisers, right? These are smallish ships, 
And so they would take these big logs, I don't know, five, ten logs, whatever, and they would lay them out and they would roll the boat up on top of the logs. And they would just push it and roll it. And as soon as one log rolled out the back, they would take that log and they would carry it back around to the front. And kind of had this little system of rollers and they would transport these boats. And that could take a few days or even a week or two sometimes to, to move the, the ship across this, this isthmus. And so people just kind of, kind of hung out in Corinth. And um, it was really a very, very transient kind of city. A lot of just kind of, kind of coming and going. Right? It was, um, there was a lot of sailors in town, a lot of soldiers in town, a lot of merchants. And, and there was really a, a, a high degree of anonymity. Right? Nobody really knew anybody else. And people, people kind of have a tendency when, when there's anonymity, when nobody knows them, to kind of behave differently than they would at home. Right, And that's kind of what went on in Corinth. In fact, you know, Corinth, Corinthians were, were known to be, to be very immoral. It was a, even, even among the Greeks, it was an immoral culture. And there was an expression in the region. People, if somebody said, you were acting like a Corinthian, it meant that you were behaving in an exceptionally immoral fashion. Or if somebody said that you had a Corinthian companion, it meant that you were spending time in the company of a prostitute. That was the, that was the nature, that was the, the culture of the city. And right there on, on a hill, kind of on top of Corinth, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And, and as you may know, you may remember from, from, from literature class, Aphrodite was the goddess of fertility. And historians say that some... Thousand temple prostitutes would descend into the city every night, and they would engage in in their work, sort of as the worship to their goddess Aphrodite. And that may be an exaggeration—a thousand—I I don't know—but it sort of illustrates the character of the city, right? That was sort of the, the voice of the city: vice and immorality. Corinth was well known for its debauchery. And this is the city that Paul was heading into for ministry. And remember Paul, he's been going through some rough times, hasn't he? And he's had the stuffing kicked out of him. He's been whipped. He's been beaten. He's been stoned and left for dead. Chased out, rejected. And, and, and you know, Paul, Paul was a great man of God. A great man of faith, a great man of vision, but he was still a man. Right? And, and I have to imagine that all of the things that he went through, they still had an effect on him, didn't they? It must have worn heavy on his spirit. Verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila a native of, native of Pontius, recently come from Italy to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul, he rolls into Corinth, 
And, and he, and he kind of networks a little bit, and he connects with a couple people, Priscilla and Aquila, this couple. And, and shortly before this time, Claudius Caesar had, had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. See, there was, there was a, a, a very real feeling of, of anti-Semitism growing within the Roman Empire. And just a couple years after this, remember, Titus and the Roman legions would, would roll into Jerusalem. And they utterly destroyed the city, broke down the temple, pried the stones apart. And remember, they deported a, a great many of the, of the Jews living there in Rome. And from that point on, Israel pretty much ceased to exist. You may remember that, that the Romans changed the land's name from Israel to Palestine, right? And, and they called it Palestine. They named it after Israel's ancient enemies, the Philistines. Right? And, and, they, and, and, and Israel was kind of struck from the, from the Roman vocabulary. And so we find here that hasn't happened yet. But Priscilla and Aquila, they, they've been deported. right? They've been exiled from Rome. And so we find them living here in Corinth. So Paul meets this couple, and it says that they were of the same trade. So they began to work together. Now it says that they were tent makers. And some of your translations, anybody have another translation that says something else? Got your Bibles, anybody? Bueller, Bueller. Some of your translations will say leather worker. Now, tent maker is probably not the best translation. And, and there are a couple different ideas of what that might mean, Right? Tents were often made of leather, but that term isn't specifically referring to someone who only makes tents. So Paul could have just been a leather worker. But this is interesting. That term was also slang. Remember, Jews often wore head coverings. The Jewish men covered their heads when they prayed, and they had these, these prayer shawls and these, and these prayer scarves. And oftentimes, those prayer shawls that they covered their heads with, they were referred to colloquially as tents. And so it may have been that Paul was a tailor, which is kind of interesting. And I don't think it's neither here nor there. It doesn't affect his doctrinal position, right? It doesn't, but, but it's just interesting to note. And so one thing we see is Paul supported himself in ministry. Paul worked hard as a missionary so he wouldn't be a burden on others. See, in Paul's day, like today, right, there are a lot of religious scam artists out there. Right? There are a lot of hucksters out there. There are a lot of people who, who present themselves as having this connection with God and speaking with God. And Paul talks about it as, as you know, godliness, using godliness for gain. You know, some of these people are trying to scam people out of their money. And Paul didn't want even to have a, a, any, any hint of that. He didn't want to be that guy. So he made a choice for a time not to receive any payment from ministry, just in order to protect the reputation of the church. So he hooks up with this believing couple, right? And they, they're in the same trade working together. And verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul 
was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So again, every week, Paul faithfully goes to the synagogue and teaches, trying to win both the Jews and the Greeks to Christ. And after a period of time, Silas and Timothy finally catch up. Remember, he had left them behind when he went to Athens. And before they got to Athens, he left Athens and went to Corinth. So they finally arrive from Macedonia in the north. They get down to Corinth and they meet back up with Paul. And I like what Luke says here in verse 5. It says when they find Paul, he was occupied with the word. I, I, I like that expression. Because I think it carries this sense of, of, of devotion and dedication. I think it carries with it this, this sense of purpose. Paul's out there working hard, teaching that, that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, he, he had this calling. He had this, this compulsion, and, and he couldn't do anything else. It reminds me a little bit of Martin Luther. Remember he says, here I stand. I can do no other, so God help me. I, I feel like that was Paul. He, he, he had this, this burden to share the gospel. And, and he couldn't do anything else but share the gospel. Verse 6. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So the Jews, they mock Paul, they scoff him, they insult him. They generally begin to make life difficult for Paul. Just like we've seen over and over again. And Paul, he finally gets to the point. He says, okay, you know what? You guys don't want to hear the gospel? Fine. I'm not going to waste my breath. I'm going to go tell somebody who wants to hear it. You know, I think that there's, there's a point in our lives where, you know, we can be sharing the gospel with family and friends and coworkers. You know, we, we, we talk about Jesus and the love of God and the goodness of God. And sometimes people continue to, to reject and to mock and to scoff the gospel. And I think there, there comes a point sometimes when we have to say, okay, my job is done. I've shared the gospel. I've, I've communicated to you. You're, you're, you're kind of on your own now. You know, I, I'm still here for you. I still love you. I, I, I still pray for you. But I'm not going to continue to preach over and over again until you're ready to receive it. Paul says, look, I've been faithful. I, I'm, I'm innocent of your blood. Now let me point this out. Paul says, let your blood be on your own heads. Every one of us, we're either covered by the blood of Christ or by our own blood. Either Jesus 
can pay the penalty for your sins, or you can pay the penalty for your sins yourself. Each one of us has the capacity to pay for our own sins. Each one of us has the ability to atone for our sins. But it will cost you. It will cost you your eternal soul. The cost is damnation. The cost for paying for your own sins is having the wrath of God poured out on you for all eternity. You can either pay the cost of your sin for all eternity, or you can allow Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for your sins. It's your call. It's our choice. And he left there, verse 7, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So I want you to notice what just happened here. Paul is being opposed. He's being persecuted. He's being rejected. Chased out of the synagogue. And where does he go? Next door. Right next door into the home of justice, this Gentile believer. And he starts a church right next door to the synagogue. That's, that's, a, that's pouring lemon juice in a paper cut, isn't it? Right? That's, that's, that, that's poking him in the eye. And as it happens, the leader of that synagogue, Crispus, he became a believer and joined the church as well. You can imagine that this, this angry group of Jews, they got even angrier, didn't they? They're, they were already red in the face, and as Christmas leaves, you can almost see them just turning purple. In their minds, not only was Paul there preaching this Jesus, but he just got the leader of their synagogue, right? He just scouted their best guy. He just, he just got their best guy to switch teams. And so there's, there's, some, there's some tension here. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city, or sorry, I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. I've said this before, but we have a tendency to think of Paul sometimes as this sort of fearless guy. This sort of navy seal of the, of the early church. This guy who, who just laughed in the face of danger. And I don't think that that was the case. It looks like, it seems like this lifestyle was hard on Paul. Right? The, 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 the grind, the, the abuse, it, it, it began to wear on the man. It, it, it took his toll on him. I think that Paul grew weary of the rejection and the hate and the abuse. 
And I, and I kind of get the sense here. It seems like at this point he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of nearing the breaking point. It's kind of like he's almost weighing his options. You know, it's just, I, I, I can't go on. Serving Jesus, sometimes it's just, it's too hard. Ministry's too hard. I just want to, I want to curl up on my bed in the fetal position and just suck my thumb for a little while. Maybe I'll go back to Berea and, and open up a little shop and work in peace. I mean, I, I'll still believe. I'll still worship God. I just, I'm just tired of getting beat up. It, it feels like, like he kind of wanted to take a step back from the stress a little bit. You know, if, if, I, if I just stop proclaiming Jesus so much, maybe they'll stop beating me up. Right? It, it, it doesn't seem like our man Paul here really wanted to be in this city. Right? He is really foreseeing some rough times ahead. Right? According to his track record, it's likely that that's going to happen again. Years later, Paul is kind of recounting this time. He's writing his uh, first epistle to the church in Corinth. And he says in the second chapter, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Right? That's, that's Paul's emotional condition as he goes into Corinth. Weakness and fear and much trembling. He says, I was scared, I was terrified, I was, I was shaking in my sandals. When I, when I came to Corinth, it was a difficult time for me. I remember our third or fourth night when we moved to Belize. We had gone down there and um, we didn't have a place to live lined up yet. And our, and our first couple days we stayed in a hotel and and we met this other missionary couple in the city, and they invited us to stay with them until we got a place. And I remember, I think it was our third or fourth night where we're staying in this little room, and it's like 108,000 degrees in this room, and it was like that the humidity was just so thick you could feel it, and it was just that there was no breeze. And I just, I, I remember I just felt like this, this overwhelming sense of just oppression and, and terror. And I was like, what, what did I just do? I, I left my house and my job and, and my security in the U.S. And I brought my family down to this, to this dangerous city in a foreign country. You know, in, in retrospect, you know, the way we did it probably wasn't the, the wisest way to do it. But nobody told us that in advance. Right? In, in, in Belize, there were a lot of missionaries. But they mostly started in the next city over about an hour away. And that was a very safe city, and there were so many missionaries there that once a month they had to get together and, and schedule their mission trips and mission teams because they didn't want to have too many people at the same area at once doing ministry. And you'd go to the airport any day in the summer, and there'd be teams down there, and they're matching shirts, you know, going out to do this or that. You know, and a lot of Belize was like that, but, but Belize City... People didn't really go there because of its reputation. In fact, most Belizeans didn't want to go to Belize City because it was so sketchy. And in fact, most Belizeans in Belize City didn't want to go to the area of city where we planted a church. And Denise and I, we, it wasn't like we were these brave pathblazers. We were just too young and dumb. We didn't realize what we were doing. So, okay, let's do that. You know? But, but 
there were a lot of scary times. There were a lot of difficult times. And, and, and I can kind of relate to Paul here, this, this, this fear of, uh, of what was coming next. Right? Paul's scared. He's stressed. He's anxious. And the Lord speaks to Paul. He says, Paul, don't stress. I've got this. He says, don't stress, Paul. I've got you. And actually, the Lord tells Paul a few things in these verses. Four, four points I want to make. Four things that the Lord says to Paul. First, he tells Paul, do not be afraid. It's said that when the Spartans were about to do battle with the Persians, one of the soldiers went to the general, Dionychanes, and he says, General, he says, there are so many Persians, when they shoot their arrows, it's going to blot out the sun. You know what he told them? He says, good, then we'll fight in the shade. I like that attitude. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. The Lord says to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord is your God, and he is with you wherever you go. The Lord tells Joshua, he says, I've got you. Don't be afraid. Take courage. It's the same thing that the Lord tells Paul here in Acts 18. Don't be afraid. Right? And, and that's, a, that's a command in Joshua, right? He says, have I not commanded you? That's a command from the Lord for us. Not to walk in fear. And Paul would later write two, two verses on the topic of fear. One to the church in Philippi, and one to his, his young protege and co-laborer, Timothy. First to the church in Philippi. He writes Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul tells the church in Philippi, he says, look, don't be anxious. Don't stress. Don't worry. Isn't that exactly where we see Paul right here? Paul says, look, talk to the Father. He'll be with you. He'll, he'll give you this supernatural peace. He's going to give you this peace that, that, that doesn't even make sense. He's going to give you this peace that surpasses all understanding. This, this amazing peace, this ability to function when you should be terrified. Courage isn't the lack of fear. Courage is the ability to function and move forward even when you're scared to death. And, and that's sort of the idea here. And later on, remember, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, For he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Paul tells Timothy, he says, This kind of fear that you're in is his spirit. He's given us the spirit of power and love. And with that, we can move forward in confidence when we're walking with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a brilliant Bible scholar, once said this. The result of worrying about the future is you are crippling yourself in the present. The result of worrying about the future 
is you are crippling yourself in the present. He's saying is worrying about tomorrow makes us ineffective today. Stressing about what could happen in the future makes you worthless for the present. Remember what Jesus said about worry? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and let your heavenly Father feed them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Jesus says, look, all this, all this stressing that you do, does it, does it help anything? Does it add a single moment to your life? Jesus says, look, the Father, he takes care of the plants, he takes care of the birds, and you're way more precious to him than those plants and birds are. Jesus, again, he says, look, he has you. Just trust him and walk with him. And you may have heard this before, but someone did a study on the things that people worry about. And the study concluded this. 40% of the things that we worry about never happen. 30% of the things that we worry about have already happened and can't be changed. 12% of the things that we worry about are criticisms from other people. 10% of the things that people worry about are health-related. Now, I would guess that that's gone up recently. Probably a little higher than that now. But, right, and ironically, stress and worry makes your health worse, doesn't it? But the study found that 8% of the things that people stress and worry about are legitimate issues. 92% of the things that we worry about are useless and worthless. That's crazy, isn't it? What do you spend your time stressing about? What fears in your life cripple you and stop you from being effective for the kingdom of God? Someone said this once. Worry is faith in the negative. Trust in the unpleasant. Assurance of disaster and belief in defeat. Worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. That's a good quote, isn't it? Worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. Second, the Lord tells Paul, speak out. Do not be silent. Has the Lord given you something to say? Has he given you a word for somebody, a, a message for someone? Has the Holy Spirit put it on your heart to share the gospel message with somebody? Speak out. Proclaim the word. Have you ever felt like you know, the Lord was prompting you 
to say something to someone, to, to share a Bible verse or to, to share a word of encouragement, and you're like, oh, I didn't do it because I was, I was afraid. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. The Lord says, don't be silent anymore. Speak out. Proclaim the word. A few weeks ago, we looked at Hebrews 10.39. And, and, and I love this verse. Probably Paul, somebody, said, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I especially love that we see this transformation from Paul, who's scared. And he goes on, and the Lord touches him, and the Lord impacts his life. And he says, look, we are no longer those who are afraid. We are not among those who shrink back. We're bold. We push forward. We, we move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, when the Holy Spirit directs you, open your mouth. Proclaim the truth. And I would probably add to some of us, when the Holy Spirit directs you also, close it. Right? There's a time to speak and a time not to. Third, the Lord tells Paul, I am with you. When you're afraid, when you're full of fear, when you're stressed out, he says, I am with you. When times are hard, when people are opposing you, I am with you. When it seems like you have every reason to stress and to worry, I am with you. I, I, I just the, the, sh the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just came to my mind. You remember when, when they refused to, to bow down to that golden statue and Nebuchadnezzar, remember he, he grew furious and he, and he heated up the furnace seven times hotter than normal. Remember it was so hot that when the soldiers went to, to cast Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the furnace, they died. And remember Nebuchadnezzar says, yes, I got him now. And he looks in there. He says, how many guys did we throw in? Three, your majesty. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, why do I see four? And one of them appears to be the son of God. That's such a great story, and I think it illustrates how, how the Lord is with us in the midst of our, our times of difficulty and, and trial and stress. Remember the story in 1 Kings 17? There's a drought in the land. And Elijah, he, he's, he's kind of a crybaby a little bit sometimes. And, and he's starving, remember? And, and the Lord directs him to the home of this widow. It's just this widow and her son. And Elijah pulls up to her house and he says, Hey, can I have a glass of water? And she goes, Sure, I'll go get you one. He says, Hey, why are you in there? Will you make me a cake? That's a little presumptuous, isn't it? Hey, go ahead and make me a cake while you're in there. And the lady says, Look, I would. But we don't have any. All I have is a little, a little handful of flour and a little bit of oil. My son and I, we're going to eat this today and tomorrow we're going to die. And the Lord speaks through Elijah. And he says to this widow, don't worry. Be faithful. 
Trust God with what you have, and he will continue to provide. You'll always have what you need. And I like that. You know, I, I've been in some hard times. I've been in some super sketchy situations. You know, my wife and I, we, we, we've been in situations where we didn't know how we were going to make it, how we are going to survive. But as we are faithful to the Lord, he always meets our needs, doesn't he? It feels like we're going to die, but we're all still here, aren't we? He always sees us through. He has us. Fourth, the Lord says to Paul, I have in this city, I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in this city who are my people. Now remember, this is Corinth. This is, this is a rough city. There's no, there's no church in Corinth at this point. There's no First Baptist Church of Corinth. right? There's no evangelical association in Corinth. This is a lost pagan city full of wretched, hopeless, sinful people. And Paul's afraid. He doesn't want to speak out. He doesn't want to get beat up again. And the Lord says, listen, I'm at work here. He said, I have many people in this city. And you may remember that right after Romans is 1 Corinthians. And right after 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. And right after, no, there's only two. Um, but you know, and remember, 1 Corinthians was rough, wasn't it? It was, a, it was a rough letter to a rough church. But 2 Corinthians was a little bit better, huh? They grew up and they matured. And, and, and Corinth ended up being one of Paul's most fruitful ministries. The Lord says, listen, I'm at work. I have a lot of people here. There's a lot of people who... Who, who I'm preparing, who I'm breaking up that, the fallow ground of their hearts. And so often we, particularly as Christians, a lot of times we'll, we'll discount certain people, won't we? Oh, look, he's, he's too far gone. She's too wicked. There, there's no hope for them. I think they'll never change. Look at her. I know the things that she's done. He's a, he's a drug addict. He is worthless. They're, they're, they're beyond hope. They're beyond salvation. And the Lord says, whoa, hold on. You don't even know what I'm doing in their hearts. I'm at work here. I'm, I'm planting seeds and, and changing lives. Two things that I want to consider. First, the Lord has people that he is working on. And do you know what they're waiting for to get saved? Do you know what's missing in order for their lives to be transformed? It's you. It's me. They're waiting for us to share the gospel. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. For he is with you. Second, 
God has a sovereign plan for salvation of lost man. And he is always working behind the scenes to see those plans accomplished. And it is a great privilege that you and I get to be a part of that plan of salvation. It's a blessing. And I encourage you, don't rob yourself of that blessing. Allow the Lord to work in you and work through you and to impact the people around you. Paul says in Romans 10, starting in verse 13, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Paul says five things here. First he says, anyone who calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. But then he asks the question, he says, how can they call on him unless they first believe? And he says, how can they believe in Jesus unless they hear about Jesus? And he says, how can they hear about Jesus unless somebody tells them about Jesus? And then he says this, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. How beautiful are, are people who bring the gospel message to the lost. I want to close with this story that Abraham Lincoln told. He was talking about when he was out campaigning before he was president. And he was out, he was on, a, he was on the campaign trail, you know, riding his horse from, from town to town. And it happens that, that it was during the rainy season and they were having trouble crossing some of these, these streams and creeks because they were, they were swollen from the recent storms. And, and so they, they, they knew that there was a big river up ahead called the Fox River. And so they stopped this inn a little while before the Fox River. And as they were there, this, this well-known Methodist preacher, he came in. And he, 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 always, he traveled the area all the time. He was always going from church to church proclaiming the gospel. And so he, he knew every river and every creek, and he knew when and where to cross. And so Abraham and his partner, they're, they're questioning this guy about the river. And the preacher said this. He said, I have one fixed rule with regard to the Fox River. I never cross it until I reach it. Listen, worry about your troubles when they arrive. Focus on today and let the Lord handle the rest. Trust Him, obey Him, and be about His business. And He'll handle the rest. He has you. And when, when, the, when the arrows of the enemy are flying at you, when doubt and discouragement and fear and loneliness and confusion, when those things are, are flying at you like arrows, when there's so many arrows that they're blotting out the sun, say, good, then we shall pray in the shade. 
Listen. Don't let fear stop you. Don't be crippled by doubt and unbelief any longer. Don't be silent for another moment. Speak out. Boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. And let him do the rest. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this. Just this word of encouragement, Lord. That we can be bold. That we can take courage because you're with us. And that you have our backs all the time, Lord. We pray that you would encourage us. That you would strengthen us. And that you would give us a just a clear vision of what you have for us, Lord. And that we could walk in that. We ask that in your name, Jesus.